0: from India. This is Ravi from Global Law Assembly and here we have the third episode of Global Hint Season 3. We have reached to Season 3 finally and since we have been discussing about the Indo-Pacific for long since Season 1 as a commitment, of course we will just keep discussing about it as an emerging geopolitical construct including America, Europe and other particular parts of the world. So we have a very interesting guest uh, and uh, uh, let me introduce uh, him with utmost humility. So we have a uh, professor Wasabjir Banerjee. He is currently the, uh, the PhD, of course. Uh, he is an assistant professor of political science and public administration a, um, at Mississippi State University. Uh, his expertise lies in conflict economy, understanding uh, the politics of nationalism and patriotism, and all of those things in the so-called South Asian region of the Indo-Pacific, and of course the regions concerned. And of uh, and uh, I would say. That, as far as issues of uh, public administration and civic governance are concerned, uh, he is somebody worth looking for, as far as his works are concerned. So uh, I'd say, welcome to Global Hint, and let's begin. Great. So uh, to begin with this discourse, the title was the Great Indian Poli- the Great Indian Political Economy, and it's a very uh, interesting title. Simply because uh, a political economy is a combination of two aspects, which I ideally consider in the sense that you can have any equilibrium of that, uh, a development economy and a conflict economy. Development economy is like something which is about development at a rural level or an urban level or a semi-urban level, however you do. Uh, there can be projects, schemes, there can be private actors involved, there can be foreign actors involved, there can be funding and so, so forth. That's a completely different paradigm and it happens in various countries in their own way, creating geopolitical situations in their own way. But there's another angle to economics, which is conflict economics. Conflict economics is something which what we commonly see acts of terrorism, domestic or international, or let us say any civil war situation or cyber attacks or anything which you may relate as conflict in a particular sense and not uh, the uh, traditional understanding of war, as people say, okay, war, worry, everything is not war. But of course, it depends what is war, what is conflict. So uh, the word conflict itself fits in a reasonable way. But um, so as India is emerging, you know, we see that uh, 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 in the geopolitics of the so-called Indo-Pacific, which is the construct concerned, because of course, the four quad countries are concerned with it, US, India, Japan, and Australia. The one thing which concerns is that Many a time, experts in India and even experts outside India fail to understand the aspects of the Indian political economy. And that happens simply because the, the colonial hangover and the colonial journey of India, a united India, and of course, a post-partition India, which is a post-colonial portion. This is something which, of course, is uh, for many a Pandora box. For many, it is a confused confused state. For many, it is many things all to, together. So what happens is that, of course, there cannot be one understanding for a complex country like us. But of course, uh, to declutter and understand how conflict economy affects our lives is something which is important because political participation is something which in a democracy like India, people would very much be wishing to do. It's just that, uh, uh, let's say, at an urban or semi-urban level, there is dis- dis- uh, discouragement simply because of the conflict economics, which is emerging To do any reason. So uh, my first question to you is, how would you describe a conflict economy in the context of Indian, the Indian subcontinent and, of course, post-partition India, and uh, uh, how it is something which is to be understood in a much pragmatic way, what it is exactly. So how do you see it?
1: I, I want to <clears throat> actually seek a bit of a clarification from you in terms of the conflict economy, because... Do you see the economy as something? When you're talking about conflict economy, are you talking? There are two kinds of economies, really, and I've I've worked on both. Um, The the conflict economy is in defense economics, so you know how the defense industry is set up and stuff like that. Or there is conflict economy in the sense that how the economy affects political stability in conflict. So, would you like the former or the latter?
0: The former we can discuss. But yes. I think for a country like India, I think the latter is something which happens the most. And it's simply because of what it is. But of course, the former should be discussed afterwards in
1: this session. I know. I've also, I also know that you've had an expert uh, before me. So I was wondering. Um, so no, I, I do work on, on conflict economies. Um, and I've, I've done some work on, on India per se. Um, my take on it is, well, not quite mainstream. I believe that the Indian economy today essentially bought into the 1990s liberalization, small government, no government is good government. It also bought into the fact that the way forward in terms of left-wing policy is to tax and spend, tax people and spend on policies. This was opposed, this was in a way slightly different from that of China, which maintained a much more government influenced economy where the government could channel funds and so on and so forth. And China is, China has always been committed. Now the West took it in the, 19, uh, in the, in the 1990s and 19, in the 2000s as rhetoric, it's simply China talking but China taken the government takes its social responsibility quite seriously. It is the same reason why the British had such fantastic data about India in the uh, district gazettes, in the provincial gazettes. It's not because they are incredibly humane, but because the Chinese Communist Party relies on people being pacific, being peaceful. So the Chinese Communist Party needs to take care of them. Otherwise, they'd they'd get them out of the door. So China has had a very good social welfare network. You know, it's called the Iron Rice Bowl. It is frayed in some ways, but it's still there and 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 services get delivered. And the other thing is that China has spent a whole bunch of money on infrastructure development, which is, if you frankly think about it, it's old school left-wing policy. Build roads, build bridges, Employ people, uh, build airports, build electric lines. You know, what I mean, that goes back to sort of um, the first years of the Russian Revolution. So I mean, it's it's, it's not it's not it's not new left wing policy. I mean, this was left wing high modernist policy. This is a policy, ironically, that Nehru would would be in uh, completely in sort of in line with, ironically, because this is something that a 1950s 60s person would know. The problem has been in India that certain sectors of the economy, I would say, have lagged behind. The take is that they have lagged behind and I'm specifically talking about agriculture and I'll move to manufacturing in a second. They've lagged behind. The the argument is that because government has not invested. But if you look at the money invested over decades, you will see that agriculture has received a ton of money. Massive policy interventions have occurred in terms of land redistribution. Some land redistribution, uh, as we now know, in terms of agriculture has not been good for agriculture. In the sense, uh, extensive uh, extensive land use is good for growing certain crops in UP, in Punjab. And uh, what's happened is that in UP you've had land redistribution, so parcelization of plots, and therefore extensive agriculture cannot take place in UP. But it has taken place in Punjab. Uh, And thus, you know, that because land redistribution did not occur in Punjab, in the old Punjab, so I'm talking about three states, right? Punjab, Himachal, Tradesh, Haryana, in the old Punjab region, there was the possibility of having green revolution of using capital intensive technology. Now, it was environmentally terrible, we know that, but there was the possibility of, of becoming food self-sufficient. We, we know the entire trajectory. But so there was land redistribution. Some of those policies were harebrained and more politically oriented for the then ruling party to, to shore up their support base rather than based on what would increase agricultural productivity. We also know that. So that's, that's ag. Now, ag today in India uh, employs a whole bunch of people. I forget the exact numbers. It's like 40% of the people live in rural areas are dependent on agriculture and so on and so forth, and contributes an incredibly small amount of the GDP. So what, what that indicates is, you know it's like 18 20% or whatever. And so what that indicates is that ma- there's massive rural unemployment and underemployment. Human resources in the rural areas are being wasted. They're not being channeled as would happen under normal circumstances via market forces into urban areas. So there's frustration in the rural areas. Of course, political parties would offer different solutions. Some political parties would say, well, this is a harsh pill, you have to swallow it. There's nothing that we can do about it, right? And in the United States, United States faces similar problems and only a tiny portion of the US population is in the agricultural sector and they, they take billions of dollars in subsidies every year. So it's not like this problem disappears. France, you know, there's this whole situation of France and Germany and Italy support the agricultural sector with all kinds of weird barriers, tariffs, uh, quotas, so on and so forth. So it's not like this will disappear in any way. But there needs to be an understanding that this is not where India is at. India needs to move into manufacturing. India needs cheap grains. And India needs to do the kind of changes that allow agriculture to take a backseat. Agriculture is not where it's at. And, and frankly, if you show me historically, and I always ask people, show me one global superpower that, is, that has become a superpower based on agriculture. <laughs> show me a great power that's become a great power based on agriculture. So there's that. So now let's move to manufacturing. Manufacturing, India was actually one of the top 10 ma- global industrial, industrialized powers in the 1940s. This sounds bizarre. But due to a series of policies that India imposed, first under socialism, and then under, after 1991, led to first stagnation and then decline. Socialism was the stagnation, Indian industry was no longer competitive, foreign products were better, so on and so forth. We know that, we've read tons of books on that. But after 1991, the, there was a decline in the sense the Indian government said, we're not gonna support Indian industry, you know, here, Electronic Corporation of India, why don't you compete with Sony? I mean, you just take a seat back, you know, I mean, take, take, that, yeah, take a step back. Take a step back and figure out how that works out, and of course that led to deindustrialization. Again, this is not a problem that India uniquely faces. Uh, there are countries such as South Africa have faced this after apartheid, when the South African economy opened up, and they said, "Well, liberalize." Okay, so they liberalized, and the moment they liberalized, what happened was all these South African companies lost out; they couldn't compete. And the government on principle, not on, and this is the difference between China and other countries, not on principle, not on pragmatics said, we can't support you, the market will solve things and sort of figure things out. Well, the market is inefficient, right? I mean, and so the market didn't. So what you've had is a loss of manufacturing capacity in India. And I think this one part of the loss was a bet, <coughs> a bet of a wager on the service sector. A lot of people thought that the service sector would make up for it, that people would get jobs in Bangalore. Guess what they didn't? And neither have they in America. Only eight or 10% people are involved in the high-tech sector in America. The high-tech sector is not uh, capable of employing many people. It It is not agriculture, it is not industry, So you have to make a turnaround know how, you know, so what what happens with these sort of mistakes, policy errors, you have social frustration, you have inequality. Some people have stepped on the Bangalore ladder and have are living in first world conditions in Bangalore, in Delhi, in Bombay, unless I say this, even in Calcutta, other people have tried to get on that ladder, gotten college degrees and now have no jobs. Or have jobs that pay terribly ter- ter- badly. I mean, to be honest with you, when I first went back to India in 2004, I saw 22 24 year old kids who were earning 20,000 rupees, 30,000 rupees a month. Well, while I knew that their fathers were earning about 10,000 rupees a month or 15,000 rupees a month, and I said, This is the future. I mean, look at these people. So now, 20 years later, you have some some young kid, some boy or some girl from Lucknow saying, hey, I want to do the same. I want to get a college degree. I want to go to get a job at a BPO. And I want to earn double of what my parents earned. And it's not there. It's simply not there. And where will they go? So India has to understand that that there needs to be manufacturing as well. Because manufacturing is, not everybody has to go to college, not everybody needs to feel frustrated. A lot of manufacturing today is capital intensive. Um, uh, former ambassador of India, Rajendra Briankar, who I hosted a few years ago, uh, went and visited uh, 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 an industrial park very close to where I live. And he went there to observe how things were being done, what kind of manufacturing processes were being used. So India needs to understand agriculture takes a back seat. And probably it would benefit if it understood that manufacturing is the way to go. Now, thirdly, social dislocations the big thing. What yeah. happens?
0: Yeah. Definitely. I am,
1: yeah. <laughs> I, I am a villain when it comes to social dislocations. So uh, I, I have received a lot of pushback. Uh, but uh, I believe they will happen. And you cannot do anything about it. The, the The position of the state is to control the dislocation, is to address the problems, see that people don't starve, see that they have jobs, so they have social mobilities. But it is also the the duty of any government. Forget India. I don't. I don't. One of the things is I don't s- provide India specific insights. I mean, these are insights that are gleaned from other places. It has to maintain law and order. It has to maintain social peace. And sometimes there aren't easy answers because there are countrymen against countrymen in every, every other society, whether it's Colombia, whether it's Argentina, whether it's Brazil, it's countrymen after countrymen, you know, so it's a rather difficult situation. But at some point of time, you will realize that there will be winners and losers in every economic policy and the losers will have to be assured that they could one day be winners as well but the losers will also have to be assured that if their path to protest is violent and disturbs the constitutional order they shall be severely dealt with why it is for their benefit so they um, so they do not take self destructive paths india is a society where there are still cleavages um, you know violent cleavages going back to the partition era and before. So if you have these social cleavages suddenly spill out, it's not just a matter of the government of India taking any action, it's about social violence between communities. So the government has to step in to say, no, you cannot do X, Y, and Z. You cannot, you know, you cannot burn up things or attack people, kill people. You have to tamp down. So assure them a path a clear path to development, clear path to prosperity and do and deliver the services. It's to deliver the goods, but also inform them that they cannot take down, you know, go down the path of violence and disorder.
0: So it's actually a very interesting. Uh let's not say crash course a very bad word to use. Let's say a toffee (laughs) of understanding (laughs) what actually the problem is. And in fact, I was going to come on this exact point that we are very much service sector intensive and our agriculture is, of course, unsustainable in many ways because of these problems. In fact, uh, the thing that you mentioned about agriculture in Punjab, because of particular, because of whatever happens in Punjab and Haryana, I add Haryana certain portions, not of course, every portion, the rest of the indian farmers and rest of the parts of the india uh, you know the republic of india are actually being affected whether it is from mizoram or whether it is from Karnataka or maharashtra or anywhere so i think if we relate it to certain issues of course it shows how it is but yeah you also pointed out something very interesting which is about uh, the question of <coughs> dislocation so what i when i observe the government and it's you know the new think tank which came up in 2017 and you know all of that i find one thing that the union government has a policy which is to say that okay we have to be a socialist government because of of course you also understand various obvious issues that you know what not many people are integrated to the government yet Not just digital inclusion, that's very high level inclusion. I think before even digital inclusion, a lot of population is not. There's vulnerability, data shows that. Uh, um, Several times it has been proved. And economic inclusion, financial inclusion is something which takes time. Digital inclusion is a very next level thing for many people still who don't have access to them. And there are some. And uh, so that is, of course, one part. Second, of course, uh, you don't have enough people in the administrative system itself, whether it is the IRS, whether it is the IAS, whether it is the IPS or the Darogas, basically, let us say the police in India. So, of course, those issues are obviously need to be handled. So, yes, India needs to be, quote unquote, in American language, the big state. And it needs to be that kind of a big state. And uh, one question which is posed that India is, a, of course, in a pre-industrial condition, but this union government tries to say, OK, fine. We, of course, have to go for infrastructure reforms. It's trying to do some of them, of course, if not the the reforms on farm. But others, of course, they have tried to do pretty well. But yeah, of course, it, we can comment on each of them on their own merits and demerits. One thing which I see is that they say, OK, on infrastructure reforms, we'll give some leverage. We'll try to include more and more and more. Like for tap water, of course, one example that they give, they have done a great job. Um they say, okay, there can be uh, foreign investors who can invest in our companies with the manufacturing or servicing. Now, one thing which you very interestingly pointed out about the high-tech jobs is the same problem we are going to see in India very soon is that there are so many jobs for the techies or the IT guys, but do we really need them? <laughs> it's a different question, but is it like, is it going to feed everyone? I don't think so. This is my view that it won't simply because you need a manufacturing population, either through PSUs or either through your private investments. But I certainly think that maybe the government has a vision that maybe it is the private sector people, maybe through FII or FDI or maybe Indian investors who can actually make that happen. And maybe they assume that the state doesn't need to intervene in that particular sense of forming a pieces or doing anything. But I think there are certain aspects of socialism which are needed but on, not in a sense of basically affecting free markets. It's only to ensure that free mar- the whole idea of free markets of laissez which people understand in India, are actually not is not uh, you know seen in a way that you know what that's the only fountainhead for our economic upliftment. Because of course mm. that doesn't work. Like that. Uh, not every startup is successful. I've observed myself many businesses and startups, whether food startups or anything in my region only Uttar Pradesh, and I've seen that one thing which they lack is that there's a lack of sustainability in them. They come up with any frugal idea, they think it's sellable, that they do. GST is a different of a game altogether in finance law, but in general, what happens is that um, they don't come up with sustainable models, that's the larger question. And Then what happens? Okay, fine, they they are toppled. COVID is a different situation altogether because even after COVID, after the second wave, many businesses rebounded in India. And this is something which happened in my region also, it happened in Avada also. So I think it's possible that we can become a startup country. That's great. But I think the question of manufacturing again comes in. I, it will always haunt us. So let's second part of this talk. And let's understand the colonial end. So uh, when uh, India was being exposed to the Raj, after the decline of the Mughals, the Nawabs and others, after the Battle of Plassey, infamously, let us say, The East India Company, the British one, not the French and others, the British Mm. one. Let's talk about them more. They were exposed to the Indian realities. And of course, various things were written about India. I'm not going to talk on that. But one interesting thing which happened was that India was, of course, an agriculture dominated society. That is, of course, true to some extent. But uh, of course, uh, the British come with their own ways. They change the economic dynamic in India in many ways. And then they say, "Okay, fine. This is the industrial way to do so. Now, we all know that when industrial revolution started in UK, of course, for populations, it was not, okay, fine, you just come up with industrial evolution, you will be just done and everything is done. No, many people died also. Many people were uh, in bad working conditions in, the, in those times. The same happened in India. And I related to the obsolete labor laws which were in India very arbitrary, obsolete labor laws, which were like, nahi nahi and just help it out and uh, do anything for a particular uh, political motivation, which actually doesn't make sense. So it does rep- uh, remind me of the age, the time, or the times when you know, hartals and strikes were a very common thing in India, under former prime ministers. So uh, when you see a transition from the colonial era, which is the British Raj, because then the proper institutionalization happened from the British. And of course, let's be honest, the British Raj and the East India Company of the Brit- British were not so much in reach out with the Indian populace that much. It is the Indian people who made that happen. Otherwise, of course, it would not have happened. You know that. Way. So uh, how do you see? Uh, uh, the 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 transformation of such skewed conflict economy because we knew that feudalism in India came in that way and it actually dispatched in a worse way forward. So uh, when the post-colonial times begin, which is the post-partition times, and of course the challenge for Prime Minister Nehru and others was okay, fine, we have to build the country, something like build back better, but of course not in that sense. I'm trying to say. So how do you see it, and what have been the common trends from the colonial past? I think that's something which people need to get it.
1: I have, ironically, uh, it's. I have a different take on industrialization in India than a lot of people, and which most 70-year-old people will agree with and most 30-year-old people will disagree with, which is, which is there was an industrialization effort by the British until about the 1850s. But what happened after the mutiny? It's called rebellion. I just call it the rebellion because you know there's so much debate about it as a rebellion. The rebellion was about the restoration of the old order, the Mughal order, the Peshwai. You know, the Mughal system. The Empire had ceased to be after 1739. The Empire had ceased to be. But it was the Mughal system, one can say, that the that the the, the rebellion was supposed to resurrect. It failed. But it scared the jeepers out of the British. Because the British thought, oh, well, uh, if we introduce too much social dislocation here, there is going to be problems. We can't continue. So instead instead of thinking about industrialization wholesale, they were constantly worried about social order. And their idea of social order was India as an agrarian state. So you would have people in collieries being given a little parcel of land to cultivate instead of getting full payment, you know, retention of almost semi-feudal sort of structures. Industrialization, furthermore, was centered on raw materials and plantation agriculture, tea, jute and raw materials, coal, so on and so forth, centered in, in India, you know, railways were were there, but they did not contribute for a variety of reasons to Indian development in the way that they did in the United States because of capital scarcity and um, sort of the way that uh, the British controlled the railway companies, so on and so forth. So the 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 capital expenditures did not lead to the sort of the the you know the downstream effects that people people expect. In in spite of these, two cities grew up. I mean. The Indian economy until the 1950s was centered around two cities, Bombay and Calcutta. Bombay was the center of Indian capital. Calcutta was the center of foreign British capital. If you want to get into the specifics, Scottish capital. Okay, was not even British, it was the Scots uh, who built the city. Now, these two were centers of capital. Now, what happened was there was in, in the 1930s a push for indigenization, a push for developing industries in India. And this culminated in sort of this led to collaboration between Indian industrialists who felt that the British were um, cheating, were sort of, you know, uh, were making deals behind Indians backs and were excluding them from the top deals, which they were right. One of the things that one has to get into and which I, I wish some historian did, and is the what happened? Who were members of these British clubs in India? Who went to the Bengal Club? Who went to the Calcutta Club? Who dealt with whom? Calcutta Club was created because Indians were not allowed into the Bengal Club. So the, the, these deal makings between British officials and Indian merchants was, you know, was there was there was no there was no connection there. It was between British boxwalas and British. Uh, ICS officers British uh, British uh, you know uh, people in power in, in in the in the in the in, at the governor's level or at, at the viceregal level so the Indians felt excluded and they wanted this this development indigenous development and this indigenous development culminated in the books the Bombay plan right that essentially the center of industrialization, would be India and the industrialists would support the government and so on and so forth. So it was like, you know, yes, we will cede control to you over the commanding heights. So people call it Nehru's idea. It's not really Nehru's idea. <laughs> it's the commanding heights and all that. It's, it's the Bombay plan. And Indira Gandhi is quoted as saying the Bombay plan is exhausted by the 1970s. Manmohan Singh is quoted by saying, okay, we followed the Bombay plan. It didn't work out. Okay. So it was, because it was, I have it, I quote, I quote them in my book, right? I mean, it's, it's, they know, they were following it, they knew. So it wasn't really socialism at all. It was this sort of crony capitalism of some sort, closed off from the world. Now, nobody thought of it as crony capitalism. Everybody thought they were doing their duty in the 50s and 60s. We know what happened in the 70s and 80s. That said, this gets into another part which is the second part of the story which is the fragmentation of the indian state so india did not have an industrial development like other countries it missed the train it missed the train under the british it then missed the train under the the congress government for the first 40 or 50 years so and, and it had the wherewithal it had the relative advantage it was more industrialized than south korea in the 1950s right india was sending industrial equipment to South Korea, sounds bizarre. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, Lee Kuan Yew thought his, his ideal city, Singapore would look like, one day would look like Calcutta, you know? So, I mean, it's, 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 it's unimaginable, the, sort of the, the advantages India had and lost. So now the second part is the Indian state. The Indian state, the British kept what, what happened in South Africa too, in Zimbabwe, settler states, it's a very settler state's mentality. We control the places that have the most people and the most resources. The rest can just go. And these are the these are this was the idea behind the zamindari system. As long as you pay the revenues and keep quiet, that's okay. So in in UP they actually reinstalled the talukdars after the mutiny. So they they removed the talukdars. Uh, and then they reinstalled them. So I mean, imagine that. Because they didn't, they didn't, didn't care about they didn't care about these uh, these areas. They wanted raw materials. They wanted the plantations. They wanted cheap labor, as long as they got them. And you let the railway lines through and the telegraph lines through. It didn't matter. But this is the same same as what sort of you know the, the South Africans the South African apartheid regime did to black Africans. They sort of reduced them to Bantustans, as they call them, these homelands. So these were like the princely states in a lot of ways. Some princely states took advantage of it and did good things. Mysore, for example, was a big deal, but other princely states used it to really crush their opposition, Hyderabad, for example, right? So India's had a fragmented state. India has had a state that was not present. The central state is not present in large parts of the country or present very weakly. So the idea that India is is, is a big state is, is rubbish. India is a state that's not present in many places. Not only, so what I tell people is, I support the Indian administrative service. I support the Indian police service. I support the Indian foreign service. But they should double, triple, 10 times their intake. India doesn't need less IS officers, India needs many more IS officers. Not only more IS officers, they need to empower the IS officers. One of the things that's happened is that the state, qua state, not political parties and governments, but the state institutions have been successively weakened. They were politicized for the first 40 years. And then after 1989, they have been captured by regional parties as well as national parties, but regional parties, especially doing a very good job in capturing state, state institutions, right? And, and that's why the whole, like, you know, the musical chairs that happens right after every election. And I shouldn't say this to you, you know, in UP you're probably very well aware of this. <laughs> so um, in, in, in West Bengal, it became a party state. You needed party loyalty to be in the state, but after the system collapsed, the same system started where political loyalties became really important. But the state, qua state, the state that stands above society, the state that makes the decision not based on party loyalty, that state has to be reempowered. So not only do we do, we have to have a society in India, and it's I say we because India is you know, and I'll get into the defense part of it. India's it's core is is the only bulwark. It's the only. Um, It's the only land army that faces China is willing and able to face China. So, you know, it's, it's part of the quad. The, there needs to be order, but not a politicized order. So there needs to be many more IS officers and there needs to be an IPS officers and they need to be empowered. They cannot be subservient. They need to do their jobs and do their jobs without looking over their shoulders and That is the, that should be the Indian state. In my opinion, that's that's the future. The other thing is open access to technical jobs. The IS and IPS are generalists. The IS especially famously generalist officers. And I support that to the core. I believe they should be generalists. But for other officers, there should be plans like the Short Service Commission, where people from the corporate sector can come in and institutionalize, so it's not like you know based on ad hoc basis but rather people could just you know there are ways you can get in and the qualifications you have and so on and so forth with they're on a website and where people from the corporate sector can come in for two or three years work in their government go back to the corporate sector and that the and then the jobs they have in government should help them in the corporate sector so if they are in let's say larson and tobro and they work in heavy machine development. you know, they, they get a job in BHEL for three years, right? I don't know, I don't know, is Larson Tubro now a PSU or is it is it private? But, because it's, all these British names have been taken over by the government, so, you know, so uh, when they come in, when, you know, let's say Tata, they come in from Tata into BHEL, then when they go back to Tata, they should have some some things that they you know that tata also benefits from or other private companies benefit from i don't know the details but there should be open access for the technical jobs but for the administrative jobs administrative jobs there should be more power and more positions sorry to bore you
0: <laughs> no i think i found it so interesting that i have three interesting uh, trends to ask about
1: actually sure, four please <clears throat>
0: and i think i should do very honestly so four trends as i said so one trend which i find is you were absolutely correct on the ias and the ifs problem and of course i agree with you simply because yes there is a problem that we don't have enough people many people are not empowered there's a politic uh, there's a compromised relationship enough of a feudal nature i would comment further uh, in various states in india and even certain uts let's say Duties are a different question not getting on the specifics (laughs) but uh, yeah it is there and that uh, nature exists now one thing which people have observed is that in the current union government nothing special about any particular minister but we have seen that uh, and I don't know if uh, you might know better on this or not because I think you might Uh, now if there's a minister and I'm not talking about ministries like law but let's say there's a ministry of external affairs mm. or there's a ministry related to railways or IT. One thing which people say that, okay, there's a person from the former IFS, you know, Minister Jashankar, or from former, I don't know, I think Ashwini Veshna was a former IAS, if I'm right, or IRS, Indian Railway Services. I'm not sure about that. But they were from the former Indian Civil Service. Ajit Dobal is quoted. IPS. Yeah. So, uh, so from the the from the formal civil service background, when these people become ministers, or they become you know political leaders in that sense, ministers. Are, I I will not take the word president because I'm not sure about that. They actually wield power very interestingly, which mm-hmm. is what uh, we see with Minister Jay Shankar also. Of course, Ms., uh, Mrs Shri uh, Shri Shus, Shus, also predicted well, but of course that's a different thing altogether. She is a she was a lawyer she was a politician. She was also a part of the cricket boards in Delhi and other parts of India. So that's a different thing. Mr. Dr. Ranjitri or Mr. Ranjitri, former minister of finance, um, very eminent politician, very eminent lawyer. (laughs) So all of these are not uh, from the civil service background. So that is one background which I see that, okay, fine. Uh, This is something which works for us sometimes that is what people say even for example the current uh, i think lieutenant not lieutenant governor but governor of the state of utarakhand is actually i don't remember um he's actually a former army person so they have inducted the person into them so of course we see this trend the second thing which I find it interesting, and uh, I'm already quoting it with disclaimer, with uh, uh, with humble respect to our uh, the bar council, the state bar councils, <laughs> and the judicial system, and with no 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 intention to violate the contempt of courts act, <laughs> uh, I just see that uh, people say when it comes to judicial reforms, and this is very much interrelated with Indian society because we also see many judges, uh, quote unquote, are uh, of course. Some of them, of course, have come by merit. Some of them, of course, have come through uh, their, you know, their fathers and mothers have been judges and so so forth. So one thing which we see is that, and I've seen personally, is that um, judges and lawyers also try to wield a sense of power dynamic into this very interestingly. But uh, the way they have done is uh, somewhere down the line quite different because before the basic structure, you know the basic structure case, the Keshav Nanda case, before emergency in the basic structure case, it was not uh, like, okay, the Supreme Court was too much interventionist, but it was just saying, let us do our job. It was, of course, after that time, it became too interventionist. And we see it ir- or ironically, that uh, people uh, who are lawyers, who basically supported the basic structure judgment, we all know that the basic structure is not going anywhere simply because it's a discussion about separation of powers which happens at the level of parliament. But now it's a different question of intellect which people will do or not. So this is one trend also which I see regarding to, regarding judicial reforms. Now the third trend which I see is regarding uh, the conflict which happens when it comes to knowledge economy and scaling up. So mm. what happens is in India, in our quote unquote social science background, we have a tendency that uh, whatever we get from anyone, we take it. It's a different issue whether we will study it, whether it is relevant or not. And I'm not saying that there is nothing good from other countries. I'm just saying that people take it very blindly. So there is something which happens. Okay, something... It's like it's like basically Bollywood making songs just because they're trending in the United States or the UK. Not even knowing whether it appeals to the Indian masses. They can Punjabize it. They can Urduize it. Basically, uh... Uh, Basically, massacring both great languages, Punjabi and Urdu. And of course, Manak Hindi or Hindustani as people wish to say. Uh, All these three languages, I really feel bad for them. I hope that doesn't happen to Bengali. (laughs) I love that language. Already
1: happened. Already happened? Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Already happened. So, so, so... We understand this problem that you know when cultural interactions happen in the case of not just knowledge economy but also this soft power economy, India has a problem that you know what? Of course, we are pre-industrial. We that uh, uh, per capita income is not too much, and of course that sense of uh, in uh, interaction has not happened. Uh, people copy anything, and we see that in both. Uh, I'll not comment on the United States. In India, at least, what happens is that. This situation that we are a pre-industrial and then we adopt certain things which don't make sense. As I told you about the obsolete labor laws and of course the politicization part. We use other things for benefit and the same happens in judicial. So they cite judgments which suit particular aspects without even knowing whether the first world took it for a different context. Or maybe they actually had certain context altogether in their own way. So these were the three trends I thought of. First one, I don't remember right now but I think we have to buy the time reasonably. So what do you think of these three trends? And yeah, I, uh, again, disclaimer, with respect uh, to no uh, no, uh, no intention to violate the Contempt of Courts Act. So I think you
1: can go ahead. Yeah. I think um, I'm, a, I'm a big supporter of judicial um, independence. Uh, I am. Um, and I believe that the judiciary should be independent and should not be influenced by political considerations, but the judiciary should understand that its decisions have political ramifications. Ju- decisions, court decisions, don't exist in a vacuum. They will affect government, so, and, and, and governance and society in various different ways. But the judiciary is also one part of the equation, the other part is implementation. So the best laws, if not implemented, mean nothing. Now, so that's that's part one, and I think now I'm going to go into the educational part, which is a very important question that you've raised, and you've raised it with that smile, which always tells me that the, that the UPwala is about to raise an extremely important question while saying that it's just nothing at all. It's just quite quite a minor issue. Uh, I would say that in India, the legal profession was not well looked upon. There was always, in the old days, before the, in the 19, uh, until the 1980s, there was a difference between barristers and Indian educated advocates. We know them. So people who had barred bar law in, in, in the inns of court in England, they always had a bit of leg up, they charged more, they were paid in guineas, and so on and so forth, right? And the advocates, unfortunately, weren't. Now, this was changing de facto, but de jure, this, this sort of separation of powers existed. After 1991, there was a system of national law schools introduced in India. The idea behind the national law schools now originally in Bangalore. Why Bangalore is quite interesting because, you know, intellectual property rights and so on and so forth. So, and far away from Delhi, far away from sort of the the Delhi school of law. So there was a political aspect to it as well, setting it up in Bangalore at that point of time. But it spread all over. You have them in Calcutta, you have them all over the place. But the idea of these national law schools was that they were like the IITs of law. Right? So the problem is that if you have an elitist system, they will create the same problems as IITs. You probably don't need that much advanced knowledge in this and that and the other. What you need is a whole population that has some working knowledge of the system. So what you need is much greater support for regional law schools, right? You don't need elitist law schools. You probably need much more region. That's the American system. Where, you know, there are top 100 law schools, and, you know, and and frankly, below that, if you want to be a small town lawyer in in Indiana or Mississippi, you don't need to go to Harvard. You get yourself a proper degree from somewhere and you do your small town law, electric wheels, uh, water uh, water getting cut off, you know, suing somebody for divorce, and you can do it, and you can do it perfectly well. So there needs to be investment in the mass education system for law. And that would also change the judiciary because judges would then have to be selected from these people. Now, the British had a multi-layered system. And I think they were responsible for this division as usual. They had this British-educated at law or Western-educated advocate system, but then they had the Vakils and Muktars, which disappeared. But what happened was an inflation of the law degree. So the Vakils then became your standard advocate. So what happened? The status of the advocate went down. Because you have tons of, you know, people who would have been vakils and muktahs became advocates. So, so there needs to be a, a, a much greater investment in law schools, which are not the national law schools, but are the regional law schools. So, and, and the judges will then, in a matter of time, these things don't happen overnight, in 15 years, in 20 years, will start. So there will be an organic, a natural change, a reflection of the national consciousness slowly, organically, mm-hmm. while retaining the institutional structures. Now, Definitely. this goes into political science as well. A yes. lot of people want to get PA degrees. in yeah. just
0: one thing to add and then yeah. we can continue. Just one thing since we are yes. talking about NLUs. Yes. So recently, a vice chancellor of a very prominent national university, the, the Rajiv Gandhi one in Punjab, yes. Patiala, yeah. he wrote a scathing article on the, in the Hindu. It's, I think, uh, under a paywall and uh, he said very explicitly now and i think this, he's one of the first people to start this that the nr madhav menon school of law which started with the 1998 nlsiu it's something which is not working anymore and the same things he said and i think i think if i can have the link i'll share it with you for with interest so um he said the same problems the same mediocrity the same problem that it's too elitist it's too much of focusing on ideas which are like very utopian people are not actually at a master level doing something and of course as you said a very uh same problem which we have is uh languages are a different issue but it's something like people at a master level don't understand how to even litigate who are actually graduates of law yeah. and i think there are many aspects in mm-hmm. india which can be dealt in a practical way by even having that basic knowledge so i think um, I think I'll share that article definitely because sure. it was one of the most interesting articles too. No, I mean, that's, read. that's the thing.
1: I mean, you need mass education and it goes for primary schooling in India. You need mass education, relying on the private sector to provide public education. How do you know, how do you control the, the, the quality? And this goes into political science and public administration. I think India needs many, many more public administration degree granting institutions. Political science, in using a bunch of theories, there is a place for it, even within public administration. But public administration needs to be a focus of degrees. MBAs, master's in public administration. BPAs, bachelor's in public administration. Public administration, distinct from political science, needs to evolve as a field. Public administration is as theoretical as empirically grounded, so it uses a bunch of data, but it has to be based in Indian realities. Now, the American system, right? I think the American governmental system is wholly unsuitable to India. And in fact, the American governmental system is nothing to be copied in other countries. In fact, in America, the state is famously weak and in large cases, quite inefficient. And you're seeing the results of it at present. India has inherited, whether it likes it or not, one of the greatest efforts at British civil administration in the world. The, the, structure, the structure of Indian administration, whether it be health, public health system, right? And I'll explain that in a second. Public health system to Indian administrative service is the iron, iron structure of India. It's rusty. It's full of holes, it has to be reconstructed. It is suited, whether one likes it or not, to a certain type of modernity, because after all, it was externally imposed and it was imposed on sort of utilitarian and state values that the British had at that point of time, but also suited to Indian realities. And over, uh, over how many hundred and plus years, it has become not much more than much more than a hundred plus years, it has become a part of the Indian landscape. So instead of bringing in ideas from the United States, work, you know, one of the things that that I always think of, uh, Swami Vivekananda used to say that you you have, you know, many people come in and say, well, you've done nothing, this is terrible. Let's break it all and let's make it anew. His attitude ostensibly was when he walked into a room, he would say, a lot has been done, more needs to be done. Let's see how we can work together to build, to make this even better. And I think that what has survived in, in, in India is incredible. I mean, the Indian administrators and the Indian police service, I mean, you can see the lack of what these services have done in other countries. So you can see, and so India needs more public administration. And again, these degrees should not be via elitist places. They are now being offered and I'm, I'm extremely happy Because, again, like, you know, in the vein of Swami Vivekananda, it is something. And something is more than nothing. And it is something that's good and something that's solid and sustainable. I am seeing universities like Takshashila offering public administration degrees. And Indians should take them. Because those degrees are suited to Indian realities. And there should be many more of them in public administration. Some political science as well. But public administration degree should be offered at all universities, uniform level. Even if people don't join the government, they will have an understanding of how a government works and how to work with the government, even if they're in the corporate sector. MPAs, BPAs, just like MBAs and BBAs. And so that's, you know, so, so that's that again, non-elitist, mass-based. I hope I answered your questions. I'm sorry if I digressed.
0: I think uh, it was reasonably sufficient. So, to understand this, of course, I think you have given a good understanding on, you know, that there should be degrees in public administration and, of course, I think uh, it was quite reasonable from my understanding and I really wish that viewers who will quote-unquote Bing watch this would really like this. So, uh, I guess uh, the one thing which uh, might be more focused on in future is the aspect of defense economy. And... Mm. Of course, it will emerge with time. In Uttar Pradesh, for example, we're already seeing certain avenues of investment starting. Of course, we know that India has a multipolar, uh, I would say India has a multipolar foreign policy skill and not a multipolar foreign No, Sorry, sorry, sorry. It's a multi-aligned foreign policy skills. My view, my view, despite the non-aligned movement, I know that we have various times claimed that we are non-aligned but it's more seems like multi-line because I mean, I can give so many funny examples. One tunnel was made in JNK with the help of a company, uh, I think of, uh, with, with the help of the support of the Turks. <laughs> then you, then we are partnering with the Russians for the AK-47, but we are also partnering with the Americans in certain aspects. So I mean, that's why is said multi-line, but of course it's closet non-alignment, <laughs> so <laughs> definitely.
1: No, I mean, look, Yeah. yeah. India is really good at diplomacy. Okay. And that is fantastic. But that also has its drawbacks because diplomacy covers for defense. It's like having a very, you know, your foreign policy has two legs, right? Defense and diplomacy. Pakistani foreign policy is all defense. It's like, you know, it's no, it's like defense, everything's defense, you know, they have the, the military is a veto player, but supposedly the foreign ministry has no has no say over Afghan foreign policy, Indian foreign policy, Chinese foreign policy, American foreign policy. I mean, by the end of it, it's like, well, you know, yeah, I mean, it's great that you can control foreign policy with, uh, I don't know, Tuvalu. I mean, with all due respect to Tuvalu and Kiribati, but, you know, it doesn't really shape Pakistani foreign policy in any way. So there's this, uh, you know, in India, the the diplomatic core is fantastic in India. I mean, I've, I've met, I've had the privilege of meeting some of the, some of the diplomats, they're fantastic. But what that happens is that, you know, the defense sector gets a short shrift. The other thing is a failed indigenization programs in India started in the 50s and 60s. India's involvement with Russia has majorly to do with this failure. Russia supplied equipment on the cheap, which reduced the need for making in India. And Russian technology wasn't that good and high tech. So there was was all these disincentives built in. Now, India now needs a defense industrial complex. And why not? I mean, if there's a place which can employ millions of people, have great, you know, develop scientific knowledge in the population, right? Create a scientific temper, employ people, uh, create public-private partnerships. Defense is a great way to go. Also create a sense of belonging. I mean, because, you know, when somebody builds, I mean, it's, it's ironically, you know, I'm I'm a, <laughs> I'm a villain for saying this, but if somebody builds a fighter jet and they think that, you know, they, they've, they've spent their time on the Marut, and they, 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 every time they see a, a Marut fly, you know, I'm using Marut very specifically, right? Or, or the Tejas fly. They say, well, you know, that wingtip, my, my team made that wing I made it. There's a sense of belonging. There's a sense of participation. There's a sense of nationalism that gets into it, which is extremely important. We see what's going on in Ukraine. There are lessons to be learned here for India as well. The days of saying nuclear weapons are good enough are gone. Short, sharp wars, salami slicing, with backed by insurgents, can upset a nuclear balance. Ukraine does not have nuclear weapons. And this I've also been pilloried about by many people about what the circumstances of that were. But India could have a situation like that evolve in many border regions. And I I say many because some people anticipating, oh, it's just one, but no, no, there could be other places as well. So it changes give people a belonging to them. The, the other thing and I, I might say is, is this the downstream effects of defense technology. That's America. I mean, Internet it was a Department of Defense thing in the United States. So the downstream effects of building sophisticated equipment, mass producing them would be fantastic. So, yes, I mean, forget the forget the foreign policy ramifications. I think the domestic policy benefits. Of a big investment in defense industrialization with public funding as well as with private funding and partnerships would be fantastic.
0: Indeed. So I think it was a very uh, informative and interesting session. I asked uh, questions with examples, which I found reasonable. And of course, I think um, when anything comes up which is interesting as a phenomenon, I think we can discuss again. And uh, it has been a pleasure. And certainly, mm-hmm. I would host you again, maybe in a panel or maybe in a dialogue <laughs> in the future
1: as time permits. Thank you. Thank you. Definitely. And awesome. now
0: you conclude this session of Global Hint. And till then, people, we have a session tomorrow for Indust Think. And of course, other episodes coming up for Global Hint and AI Now. So, till then, stay tuned, wait, and let's see how things develop. So, namaste again.